Most Sundays, you find me in a pulpit robe or a Geneva gown in the pulpit, and something about that accents the fact that when we read and proclaim Scripture, we are naming the unique and authoritative nature of Scripture. It is raised, and we see that. We name that visually. But there's another truth that we also name as Christians, and that is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God in the flesh, who came and dwelt among us just as we are. The word landed in our midst. And so uh, this summer, I want to preach from this space to name that truth too, that the word lands a little closer in our midst and even wears something more suggestive of the everyday kind of attire into which the word lands. As we prepare ourselves to hear God's word, let us go to our God in prayer. Most gracious God, for the word of God written, for the word of God proclaimed, for the word of God made flesh, we give you thanks. And may your everlasting word be written upon our hearts this day. Amen. We are starting out this summer today, this summer series Uh, looking at the Sabbath, and actually there is a whole lot to cover even in this stretch of the summer. We won't nearly hit everything, but we start today and we look at Genesis 2, verses 2 through 3, and then also from the Old Testament, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Down to Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then over to the New Testament, we hear from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Earlier this week, Michelle, Leo, and I were on the Camino de Santiago, or the way of uh, St. James. It is a path of around 500 or so miles that stretches across a small portion of France and then uh, much of northern Spain. It has been this road that is used for pilgrimages since the Middle Ages. The route ends in a city where it is said that the remains of James, one of Jesus' disciples, are said to be buried. And, and, and thousands of people from all over the world do the Camino every year or do just a portion of the Camino every year. We, we did three days on the Camino. And people who are on the Camino, they are called pilgrims because there's this basic understanding that it is not just a hike or a physical challenge, but truly a spiritual journey. 
And at one point along the Camino, we stopped along the side of a path with about seven or eight others from around the world for some rest, some sustenance. And I asked this one guy from Ireland if this was his first time on the Camino. He said, been on it a few times, actually. And, and if I'd known about the Camino when I was your age, I would have done it 50 times by now. He was probably in his 60s. So he was essentially saying that he would have done some or all of the Camino at least once or twice a year, every year of his life, if he'd just known about it in his 30s. I said, wow, so what is it about the Camino that's, that's so captivating that, that you might want to be doing that that frequently? You've already done it a number of times. And another guy from Australia, he speaks up, he said, you know, it, it's the one space I know where your whole body can actually slow down and smell the roses. You notice things. You take photos. A Canadian woman, she, she spoke of the time finally away from technology and, and work and time to, to just notice, to step and touch and smell really simple stuff. Over and over again, actually, folks spoke of it as a way to get away from all the busyness, all the demands. They were looking for a place of rest, of peace, of, of a simple delight, but not just any place. They, they sought a holy setting, an ancient pilgrimage, and they were willing to travel quite far to find this holy rest. One of the most profound aspects of the creation story is that God creates just such a place a place of rest of peace of delight but instead of creating a specific holy place on the map where you have to travel far and wide to get to it God creates a holy space in time God does not carve out part of the earth and hallow it as the spot you're going to have to get to. God carves out a part of time and hallows it, makes it holy. God creates a holy rest, a Sabbath for humankind. And I think especially in our time, in our time where we know our technology keeps us connected 24-7, and that means really there never is a ceasing to our work and commerce In our time where I think we know that technology has us demand from one another faster responses, quicker turnaround, continual productivity. In our time where we know these very real and heightened divisions are then exasperated by stress and anxiety that always grow so much more readily among a tired people. In our time, as one theologian uh, observes, where we speak about rest and sleep to one another the way hungry people speak about food. In our time where the church in North America is in decline and the number one response we usually offer is to just try and do more with less, work harder and longer and figure out a way to move forward even as statistics and lived experience continue to show both lay leader and clergy burnout rising. In our time where the answer so often to the question is of how are you is busy. In these are times, our issue is, is not about overly legalistically keeping the Sabbath just the right, proper way. At other times, in other eras, other spaces, that has been a problem for God's people. No, in these are times, the most needful and I would say urgent thing for the pilgrims of Jesus Christ is simply to recover the gift of the Sabbath, period. 
Our stress, our anxiety, our anger, our temptation to reach for the quick fix or an escape, these are all emblematic of a deep tiredness of a people who have forsaken the gift of Sabbath. And so, as I mentioned before, we're going to spend the summer considering this gift. What makes it so central in Scripture? What is it, why is it so profound, so life-giving, not only to us, but those around us? We're going to spend the summer practicing receiving this gift. And today, we start, we just very broadly start by going back to the beginning. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. The verb for rested is sabbat. Literally means stopped. It's the word from which we get Sabbath. There is a sense not that God was tired or couldn't think of something else to do, but rather it conveys the task was completed in its full beauty and goodness, and so God ceased. And as the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says, the fact that God not only ceased but then hallowed the day or sanctified the day or made the day holy means that Sabbath rest is ordained into the very fabric and structure of created life. God etches this gift of ceasing our work, one in seven, right into the rhythm of the most basic aspect of existence we share with everyone else, namely time. Sabbath is irrevocably etched into our reality. And the fourth commandment, which I read from Exodus, makes it clear that because God rested and etched this into the fabric of reality, we... And our families and those who work for us and and the immigrants in our midst and even our animals shall rest too. God rested one in seven. We are made in the image of God, so we too rest. Now there, there is so much to unpack, even in those short verses in Genesis and Exodus. We're going to hear more about some of what's there just as we go through the sermon series. But for today, I want to note something that is perhaps... Easily overlooked sometimes, but but actually also central to what makes the Sabbath uh, so essential and even foundational for Christians and maybe all the more so for uh, those out of the Reformed tradition. You recall that it was on the sixth day, right, that that God creates humans and then tasks humans with being fruitful and and multiplying and being stewards of all creation and, and taking care of all the different living aspects of creation. We are tasked with work. That's the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, the first chance humans get to start in on that to-do list from God, what happens? It's a day of rest. Karl Barth, the, the 20th century uh, Swiss theologian, he famously points out, says, look, God rested on the seventh day. That is the first divine action which man is privileged to witness. And that he himself may keep the Sabbath with God completely free from work, that is the first obligation laid on him. For humanity, it's rest first and then work. Humanity races into existence and it's Sabbath first, then work. It's grace first, then work. The Sabbath you see, captures something foundational to our theology as Presbyterians. We heard how the Apostle Paul put it so succinctly. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. God's grace comes first. God's grace, God's undeserving favor, embraces us before a single work is ever 
done, right? We don't earn favor by doing our works before God. We don't unearn God's favor with whatever works we're doing. We rest in God's gracious favor, and out of that grace, empowered in that grace, in thanks for that grace, we work. To start the week with the Sabbath is to name very clearly the theology we hold dear. First grace, then work. First rests, then work. Wait, wait, we say. I didn't do enough last week. I didn't get through enough last week. I actually did some terrible things last week. I wasted a lot of time last week. I can't start a week without first getting my act together, doing more, fixing some things. I might get to a Sabbath one day when all of the crazy settles down. But right now, I don't deserve a Sabbath. I certainly can't receive a Sabbath. Exactly. No one ever deserves grace. And have we ever considered that maybe part of the sense of crazy that we all know has to do, at least in part, with an ongoing denial of Sabbath grace? To embody the Sabbath is to name our belief in grace and then work. It is to show a profound trust that even with all that is before us, God's grace will prove more than sufficient. When we were at that rest stop in the Camino, another guy jumped in and he, he goes, you know, I do the Camino because it's a place where my body catches up to where my mind wants it to be. And he goes, does that make sense? What, what he was getting at is his mind wanted him to know and receive this true sense of rest, of peace, of delight, of, 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 of anchoring. But somehow it was not going to be fully known or received until his body knew it. Until he showed up and started walking, quite literally, in concert with where his mind was. To state the obvious, one cannot know the gift of the Camino just by mentally believing in it. He needed his body to walk it. And most assuredly, one cannot fully know the gift of grace simply by mentally believing it. Grace is a gift that is received into our heart and mind and body and soul. To be fully known and received, it must be walked. And honoring the Sabbath is one of the central ways in which we walk grace. We name grace down to our very embodied existence. Our schedules. The grace of Jesus Christ then is not just a a good theology that works in our minds. It orders our very days. But now then, what does... I mean, what does that really mean? When we press the question into the particulars, what does it mean to receive the Sabbath, to really embody this rest? There is so much that can be said about this. Faithful people have debated for millennia over what it means to cease from working and to rest faithfully. But for now, let's just observe two things we can see from the Genesis passage that give us a framework, one negative, one positive. Negatively, we cease from work. God rested, right? The word is sabbat literally stopped work. Now, how we define what work is for each person here is is not always a simple or straightforward matter. Again, there are wide-ranging debates on this. For now, broadly note, a cessation of work is somehow central to receiving the gift of the Sabbath, of this grace. Positively, so that's a negative, positively, we actively delight in God and God's creation. Notice how, how Genesis 2-2 reads. 
And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. Wait, I thought God rested on the seventh day. This said God worked or finished the work. And then, and then it says God rested. So did God work or did God work a little? And then did God rest or was it both? Or more to the point, what then does that mean for us? Are we to, to rest or work a little and then rest? Or what to do with this paradox? What many Jewish commentators have argued over the millennia and what Christian scholars have picked up on is that on the seventh day, God creates manuha. It's a Hebrew word for rest, but, but really it is better translated as joyous, repose, tranquility, or delight. The idea is not so much taking a nap or just vegging out. It has an active sense wherein one delights in, rejoices in God and God's creation. It's much like how walking the Camino is on one hand not working. You do not see anyone journeying along and doing email, making phone calls, fixing a car, doing chores. They're not working. And yet at the same time, it is quite active. There are bodies in motion. There is noticing, there's walking, there's conversation, there's photography, there's laughter, there's meals, there's prayer. Sabbath receiving is both a negative, no work, and a positive, a delight in God and God's creation and the gifts God has given. Another way to put it, Sabbath keeping, Sabbath receiving is paradoxically active rest. There's motion, delight, noticing, energy used, worship shared, songs sung. But there's also a cessation from that which is work and chore. So, for instance, you're a writer. You write six days of the week. Writing's how you make a living. You write articles or grants or music or blogs or books. And if that's the case, then, then writing on the Sabbath is work that would be ceased. But maybe you're a mechanical engineer or you're a stay-at-home parent. That's how you spend most of your other six days. That really is, in a foundational way, your, your work. Then a little space to write on the Sabbath may actually prove a wonderful way to delight in God, to pray, to pay attention to who God is, to, to, to what God is doing, to just delight in the gift God has given you. Now that is one super small, super simple example about how we might start to think about living into an active rest Sabbath. I know that every single one of us can bring all of our particular situations to bear on this. What if my workplace requires I use all seven days to get that stuff done? What if I'm primarily a parent? That really, that, that, that's my work. I can't stop parenting. What if I need to remain connected to my phone for customers, complaints? What about being on call? What about cooking, cleaning, sports, walking versus running? Family time, friend time versus alone time. I mean, what, what's work, what's rest, and, and, and oh my goodness, what about all the others? Right, that's part of the commandment. How can I ensure those around me don't have to work? And how can I help the immigrant in my neighborhood know the same? Two quick things. <clears throat> Stay with the sermon series this summer. We're going to be walking through these kind of questions all summer long. All while recognizing, quite frankly, good Frank. Christians disagree on precisely how some of these questions get worked out as we seek to receive the full graciousness of Jesus Christ. 
Second, community is essential to discernment. These are actually good and faithful questions in our overly busy, overly tired, overly exasperated culture. We need one another. And so I invite you not only to stick with the series here, but join in on a Sunday school before this service, 9 a.m., or on one of our Wednesday discussion groups you can read about in your bulletin. One Wednesday morning, one's happening Wednesday evening, every week, all summer long. And in those spaces, we're going to go deeper with the Sabbath theme, the Sabbath scriptures, the implications for our lives, conversations about what it means, what's difficult, what's life-giving, what's beautiful. And in those spaces, we'll offer also, also offer some books and articles and recommendations for further consideration. Because there really is a lot to um, this remarkable gift. Let me leave you for now, though, with one final story from the Camino as we are all considering a fresh reception of this grace. <clears throat> one of the things that struck me about the Camino was how most of the people we met or walked alongside were probably in their 60s or 70s. Probably a good two-thirds or more of the people on the Camino all around the world were in this age category. And I can imagine there's any number of good reason for that. But I recall again the man who talked about doing the Camino. I wish he could have done it 50 times if he'd known to do it at my age. And I recall how he went on to say in that same conversation, a bit jokingly, but really only halfway so. You know, you work all your life trying to make money. And then you go and you live like a pauper. There was this sense of reflectiveness in his voice that seemed to be saying, if I knew... Then, what I know now, other things would have been prioritized. Money might have moved down on the priority list because the greatest gifts really are right there etched in creation before you. Had I known about this gift earlier, the rest of my life might have been oriented around putting the Camino twice a year and working from there. The truth is, there is a great cost to receiving the Sabbath. Real grace is costly grace. It is disruptive grace. We're going to look more at that in particular next week. But suffice it to say, taking this gift seriously, joyously, that shifts the calendar, that shifts the schedule, that shifts the priorities, and really what's shifting is the heart. And yet there is a wisdom of those who've pilgrimed along the journey longer and further than some of us. And that wisdom said, if I... If I did it over, I'd put the Sabbath first. I'd put grace first. I'd wrestle with how to open myself to that first and let the other days work around that. Other realities flow from that center. What would it be for the church of Jesus Christ, not only in word, but in body, to proclaim our trust and hope in God's grace? What might flow forth in life and power and justice from a church that is not frazzled, busy, and running, but one that is rested, one that is rhythmed in grace? What, what might flow forth from a church who truly believes at their core, their embodied being, that God's grace is more than sufficient? How might our experience expand in loving of neighbor as we seek not only to learn how to receive rest but but to give and protect rest for family workers immigrants among us and since grace can never leave us the same we should be asking what might get overturned by receiving this gift
We need not fly to Spain or anywhere else. God created a space in time. May you receive even this day empowering sustenance for the act of rest that is before you. Amen.